Father Rick, thank you for the invitation to share with you today. I count it a deep honor. Thank you. And let me just take a moment to uh, thank you for your leadership this past year. I know I speak on behalf of the whole congregation. Thank you for your leadership. You've opened the word before us, on most Sundays anyway. You've modeled the faith. You've loved us. You've prayed for us. And you've set the table of the Lord for us, too, and invited us, uh, young and old, to partake of the, to meet the Savior of the world here every Sunday. Thank you. Be blessed, Father Rick, be blessed. And for the rest of you, the Lord be with you. Let us pray. Wonderful God in heaven, how we thank you for the terrific privilege you give us Sunday by Sunday to come together in the house of God, the people of God, the sisters and the brothers, and there to meet with the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We pray, O oh God in heaven, that you would just come now as we meet for these few moments and speak with us as we speak with one another. We ask that you would meet with us as we meet. We pray that you would open up your words and uh, communicate with us from heaven. We uh, look to you, Heavenly Father, and we pray that you would uh, come and meet us now. In Jesus' wonderful name we pray. Amen. I tell you what, Rick, I, uh, I, love, I love this wonderful round of Christmas texts, and I bet the whole parish does. And I, it's just a hoot to be able to share on another of them today. I'm kind of sentimental that way. I love the ancient prophecies that come just booming down through the centuries, don't you? They say stuff like, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and his name will be called Wonderful. I love the angels' song, busting out of heaven through the skies that first Christmas morning. They said, they sang glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among all people. Theologians have a word for stuff like that. We call it good news. <laughs> I love the scruffy shepherds. I think I love the scruffy shepherds most of all, huffing their way into Bethlehem. And then, dear uh, Mary and Joseph with the child, they were not uh, much older than children themselves. And they were swept into a story that was older and deeper and bigger than the world itself. Our text uh, for this morning is uh, the last in the round of Christmas texts. There are 12 days of Christmas, as, as uh, you uh, will, will, I think, know. And uh, now we have reached our conclusion. In our house, it's, it'll be time to pack up the tree and put away the tinsel and get ready for another year. Tomorrow is day 12, often called Three Kings Day. And today we want to celebrate their story. And then we'll turn a page in the calendar, and uh, the season of Christmas will roll into something that we called Epiphany. We have uh, before us today a story that you might say is, is about getting more than you bargained for. The story begins with the city of Jerusalem and its king set into an absolute panic by the visit of holy men or seers from the east, right? We've learned through this last week that the panic, in fact, was pretty serious stuff and would become something actually kind of murderous. The days, 12 days of Christmas, are not all happy days, 
We have the Feast of St. Stephen. We have the Feast of the, of the Holy Innocents as part of it. How many of these holy men were precisely? We don't know. We picture three and have for a very long time, but only because they carry three gifts. In Eastern Christianity, and Syria in particular, there are thought to be 12 of these holy people that arrive from the East, one for each day of the Christmas season. And they were accompanied, in any case, by a whole crowd of, of a, some kind of entourage, I should think. People of that sort of stature didn't often travel alone. They would have had a disciples, I suppose, maybe a few interns, I don't know. They would have had a, maybe cooks and bottle washers, servants, different kinds of people. It was much more than would commonly fit in a creche, which is probably why we picture three, so that it would fit on the mantle. <laughs> Who they were or where they were from precisely, again, we just don't know. But we may picture, I think, something kind of exotic, I should think. These were magi in Greek, magi, uh, which is the word from which we get in English magic. Matthew says nothing about kings. Here is a word that's, um, that's not uh, original either to English or even to Greek. It's, uh, it was borrowed from an older Persian word, this word, that was used to describe the priests of Zoroastrianism, who were internationally famous in those days for their skill at astrology, which was then considered the high science of reading the stars. It's the word, as I say, that uh, we get the word magic from in English, but I mean... Like, you should not uh, picture anything that could remotely fit into Hogwarts, let's say. <laughs> it was spells and incantations and cat capes and wands and such. It's not that, kind of, not that kind of an image. Some translations call them Magians, following St. Augustine. Others simply call them astrologers. In fact, Anglicans tend to call them astrologers. That's what J.B. Phillips chose for his translation. They read the stars. Matthew uh, reports that they came from the east. St. Augustine calls them the first fruits of the Gentiles. They were, you might say, the emerging church. But the church from the south and the church from the east, the church of Asia and Africa, and it bears noting that these were the first to kneel before the Savior in worship. The shepherds were there and out again, I think. It doesn't say about anything about kneeling anyway. And the first to offer a theological witness to the, to, the, to the Savior were these Easterners. They may have been Persians, which is to say ancient Iranians. Many scholars think some of them must have been Africans, um, uh, maybe uh, ancient Ethiopians. A lot of people think they were Indians, maybe. Some feel that they, in fact, it's surprising how many feel that they, they maybe come from as far away as China, these, these people. You may picture turbans and robes, I should think, flowing fabrics, bright colors, camels, bells, different foods, exotic smells. Do you get the idea? People that looked a bit like Aladdin, maybe, or a Confucius, or maybe the Prince of Sudan. They were just the sort of entourage, in any case, that caused the people of, his, the people of a Jerusalem to draw the curtains. The king of the world is among you, they say. We have come to worship him. And the whole world, was the hidden message, is just behind us. 
and ready to come to. You can see how this might have set the city into a bit of a panic. Don't get me wrong, the people of Jerusalem were a good and sturdy religious sort of people. A bit cowed by Herod, it is true, but not bad exactly. They read the scriptures, they went to the temple, they recited their prayers, they knew the promises. Yet it's one thing to know the promises kind of theoretically. It's another if the promises like come true in a thunderclap and turn everything that you thought you do upside down and like move into the neighborhood. There is such a thing as getting more than you bargained for. So what are we getting with the arrival of this child? What did uh, what are we what are we getting into? What did the Magians see uh, in that in that first encounter so long ago? We read in the text that the Magians brought three gifts, right? They were, you might say, teaching gifts, and they were uh, gold, and then frankincense, and then you've read this story before, I think. For the next few moments, I want to follow an old, old tradition that dates back to the 5th century at least, and and it must have been before that, in fact, that gives us not only the names of the three gifts, but also the the three magi themselves, uh, following a tradition from the very earliest days. You'll find these in a a Greek manuscript uh, in the city of Alexandria that, that dates back to the year 500, and it must have been older than that. Next time you're in Egypt, there it is. A fellow named John Henry Hopkins in 1857 picked it up in that famous old Christmas carol that I bet you might have sung this Christmas season, uh, We Three Kings of Orient Are. He picked up those same names from, from a long, long ago. And he was an Episcopalian, so I feel like I'm on pretty good ground. First, there is Caspar, or Gaspar, thought to be from India and thought to be the oldest of the three. Some scholars speculate that this Caspar is the ancient namesake of what is modern-day Kandahar in Afghanistan. We've had, in our little community, we've had people in that city. And Kaspar presented the Savior with a gift of gold. Gold is perhaps the most familiar of these uh, special gifts. We use it in all kinds of special things today. You might put a chunk of it on your finger, and it represents a kind of special relationship in your life. Maybe you wear a chunk of it around your around in a chain around your neck, and it might represent love or faith or some special thing. In those days, gold was used, in particular, to put on the head of kings. It was a symbol of kingship. So the gift from Caspar carries an unmistakable message. In the child of Bethlehem, the king has arrived. I mean... Um, this is, uh, this is something we should remember about Christmas. It's not like the visit of some dear old granddad, a fellow you haven't seen for a while, who shows up with a smile to catch up on things. It's not like that. It's not like the visit of a, some remote dignitary who maybe has the right to stop by, but doesn't come by very often, and now he's there while passing through the neighborhood. It's not like that. What we have uh, here is more like an invasion. This is what Herod recognized instantly and what has set him into such a dither. Caspar saw more than meets the eye. The arrival of this child means that the king 
is again on the scene. He, I mean, he looks pretty cute in that little clay crash that I bought one day, one time in Mexico. We keep on our mantle every Christmas season. But this child is something more than cute. This child is born to rule. Let me share with you a pithy quote from C.S. Lewis. Enemy-occupied territory, C.S. Lewis said. That is what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed you might say landed in disguise, and is calling us to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. No wonder Herod freaked out. Then we have Melchior, thought to be a Persian scholar, maybe an ancient Iranian. Melchior uh, presented the Savior with the gift of frankincense. Frankincense, um, Pastors can buy that stuff, I think, in little vials. They can use it like for anointing people and so on. It's a kind of incense, you won't be surprised. But this is frank incense. That is frankly incense. It's true incense, you might say, and something that's reserved for the most special occasion. This is a a fragrance, the ancients thought, that was fit for God in a particular sort of way. It was itself a kind of symbol of deity whose aroma was thought to somehow ascend directly into heaven. I mean, how the ancients came up with these ideas, I don't know. But in this case, maybe they got it from God himself. We read in uh, Exodus chapter 30, the Lord tells Moses, he says, frankincense shall be most holy to you. And uh, uh, God says, you shall not make it for yourselves. It shall be for you holy to the Lord. So this was a king that was coming to rule everywhere. This was a king who was coming to invade everything. This was a king that was coming to reach into every dark corner of the world, and by implication, every dark corner of our lives. And his name is going to be God with us. The incarnation means that nothing can ever be purely secular Again, let me repeat that. Nothing can ever be purely secular again. You go out this afternoon and try to find something that's purely secular. You will not find it. God is here. The wall that once stood between heaven and earth was cracked open at Bethlehem. And now light is getting in. God has come into the world. And this means that Christ has come to be everything for us. Not a little piece of salvation not a little bit of forgiveness, not a little bit of encouragement maybe or some such thing. Christ has come to be everything for us. Fitting, I mean, he was, he was fit to receive frankincense. Martin Luther, one of my favorite guys, said uh, one time, when you have Christ, you have everything. <laughs> In Christ, you come to the Father, although your eyes don't always see it and your reason does not grasp it. And in our, gospel, in our epistle text for today, St. Paul said, God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. And finally, there is Balthazar, pictured uh, in the old traditions as a dark-skinned individual. As some scholars think that he was from Ethiopia, A lot of other people think that he maybe came from India. Baltazar. Baltazar presents the Savior with the gift of myrrh. 
We're maybe least familiar with myrrh. Myrrh is, a, is an embalming oil. Not such a likely baby shower gift. <laughs> this uh, would have been like giving a, a bottle of formaldehyde. <laughs> I mean, like you try that at the next baby shower. It would be creepy. It would have seemed like a symbol of death. Myrrh. You may remember that Jesus was offered wine mixed with myrrh in the moments before his crucifixion, right? It's in Mark chapter 15. And here it is again, at the beginning of our Lord's life, like a bookend, myrrh. This is what the women probably carried to the tomb with which to anoint the Lord's body on Easter Sunday morning. And here it is again, myrrh. John Henry Hopkins, who wrote that cool song, said he called it a bitter perfume, breathing a life of gathering gloom. No wonder Mary had lots of things to ponder in her heart, like we read in St. Luke. This gift, too, carries a message, and it's not at all what you might have expected. The rightful king, Emmanuel, God with us, has arrived on the scene to die. I mean, heaven's invasion is nothing at all like the invasions you might see in the movies. We have a king who invades the violence and the chaos by kind of swallowing it into himself. We have a king who conquers the sin and the death that floods our world by somehow becoming sin and death himself somehow, by taking it into himself. We have a God who becomes sin himself on our behalf. He, he becomes sin for us and dies our death, we're going to see. He dies our death eventually and then swaps it out freely for his own life. You give me your sin and death, he says, and I'll give you my life. How about that? We'll consider it a straight-up trade. That's what he says. Frankincense had meant that nothing can purely be secular again. Myrrh means that nothing can be irredeemable. In the words of St. Augustine, myrrh points us to the one who's going to die for the sins of all. So tomorrow, maybe, you're going to pack away the crash for another year. You're going to take down the tree and store it away, to store away the wreaths and candles into some corner of the attic. That's what we're going to do. And we'll turn a page on the calendar, and Christmas will quietly turn into Epiphany, and things will begin to look normal again. Don't believe it. Here is the message of the Magi, whatever their names might have been. With the arrival of this child, nothing is normal again. Here is what they saw. This child turns out to be king. These shepherds, we're going to find out, are going to turn out to be priests. The old, old promises, all the promises that we've inherited from all the centuries past, they're going to turn out to be true Nothing is going to be similar, is going to be familiar, is going to be the same again. And it's going to be better. There will be sin that will turn out to be covered. There will be darkness that will turn out to be lightened by his grace. There will be hope restored. There will be death overcome. There will be a cross one day. That is true. Just a few weeks down the road. But then an empty tomb. And there's going to be Southerners and Easterners who turn out to be our friends and fellow workers. We're going to put our hands together and we'll have a kingdom to build together. We're going to see the world epiphanied. I just made that up. 
epiphanied. We're going to see the world epiphanied. That is to say, illuminated by the redemptive grace of Jesus. This, in fact, is the theme of the entire church year that comes before us. It's the theme of the entire New Testament, and it's the theme that will carry us through the year. And that's what we've gotten into with the arrival of this child. So in just a few moments, Rick is going to invite us to a simple and modest supper, a sip of wine, a pinch of bread. Perhaps you know that, this, uh, that the word Bethlehem that's been so much on our mind and lips these last weeks is an, is an old Hebrew word, and it means house of bread. You probably knew that. Bethlehem means house of bread. So, I mean, like, that's suggestive to me. It means, like, coming down to the altar Sunday by Sunday is a bit like the company of shepherds and the Magi coming on down to Bethlehem. We go down to the house of bread, in a sense, and there we always find more than meets the eye, just like they did. There we will meet the one and only Savior of the world. There we will meet the one who has come to be our king and our God. And he's come to, to walk with us personally. Day by. There we're going to meet the one who has come to claim our everything and then to give his everything for us. We're going to discover he won't fit into a box for long up in our attic. He has come to die for us. And he's come that we might live forever for him. More than you've bargained for? Well... <laughs> I'll say. Amen.